Go ahead and turn to Acts 18. We are continuing our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. And I want to start with a a little application that kind of leads into what we're going to be looking at today. So um, my wife is awesome in so many ways, all right? I love her to death, and she has so many godly attributes and just awesome gifts that the Lord's given her. <laughs> I mean all that. I do. But sense of direction is not one of those gifts. And what I've learned over the years as being the one that does the majority of the driving in our relationship is that if she's going to offer some input on the direction that I should go to get to our destination, that I want to hear her out. But it's best just to keep going the way that I was planning on going if I don't want to get lost or end up way off route. All right. I say that lovingly. All right. Now, the thing is, though, that she doesn't have to really have a sense of direction. It doesn't really matter because seeing as I'm the one that's doing the majority of the driving, as long as I know where we're going, since I'm the one at the steering wheel, we're going to get there. We're going to be all right. And I was thinking how much like our relationship with the Lord, sometimes my sense of direction can be kind of messed up. Maybe it's because I, I don't know God's word as, as well as I do. Or I know it, but I'm struggling in faith to believe it or live it out in my life. And things can be kind of messed up or feel messed up. They're not messed up, though, because... As long as I'm not the one that's trying to grab the wheel from the Lord, he's got things under control. He's at the wheel. And as long as I keep letting him do the steering, we're going to get to the destination he wants to get to. Amen? And so in today's section of scripture, we're going to see Paul struggling with kind of understanding what's going on in the ministry he's doing for the Lord, just having a sense of fear, struggling with anxiousness, worry. And God have to remind him of some similar things that ultimately what he was trying to do is just remind him that, hey, I got things under control. And because of that, you can have peace. Because of that, you can just keep going and trust me because everything's gonna be all right. And so seeing as how all of us can struggle with fear or worry or feel like things are out of control at different points in our life, this is a very applicable section for us to pay attention to and learn from and see those the, the things that God reminds them of because they're important for us to be reminded of too. So we finished up Acts, 8, or Acts 17 last week with Paul. If you remember, he was in Athens, um, you know, big cultural hub, big city back then, still re- really famous back or nowadays. And he gets uh, invited because he's, he's preaching the gospel and it was something new to the people there. They hadn't heard it before. So he gets invited to the Areopagus to share with kind of the, the thinkers, the, the real like well-informed people in society to tell them this new teaching. And basically he gets the sense that they don't want to hear what he has to say. He, he he's faithfully preaches Jesus using the word of God to them, but they kind of cut him off and so sensing that they didn't really want their minds changed, he goes and moves on. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts 18 today. So let me read the section we're in, and then I'll pray, and then we'll start breaking it down. It says, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, 
Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them dear heavenly father again fear being something that every single one of us can struggle with and we know that that's as a believer that's something that you intend to free us of you tell us in multiple places not to be afraid that we're to pray instead of being fearful we're not to have a spirit of fear and so lord here we see uh paul somebody that we look at as kind of like a super christian And here he is struggling with fear. And you calm his mind or you you remind him of these truths that are supposed to produce peace and stability in his life, just like they are for us. And so we want to listen. We want to pay attention so that we can live in these truths that we know. Not only know them in our heads, but also live them out and experience that abundant life you intend for us. So I pray that would happen in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it says, starting in verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth should sound very familiar to us, if you guys know your Bibles, because um, Paul, is a, as a result of this trip in preaching to these people, this is who he writes the letters of First and Second Corinthians to, okay? Later, at a later date, basically to the church that results of this visit. Corinth being a major city, in the Roman Empire, as it was located along the sea at a crossroads of two major trade and travel routes. So Paul, kind of following his previous pattern of going to big cities with lots of people, knowing that he had the greatest potential to reach people where they get saved, and then, then they kind of spread out to the surrounding communities. So that's kind of his heart. But he also probably likely understood that there would be challenges in preaching to the people in Corinth, because Corinth had quite the reputation as a very carnal city or a city full of hedonism and immorality, similar to the stigma that Vegas has as being called Sin City. That's kind of what Corinth was thought of back in the day. It was thought of that to such a degree that people would actually call you a Corinthian if you were somebody that indulged your flesh. Like it would be like calling you a party animal or a drunkard. Like basically that's the terminology they would use. It also not being surprising that Paul penned the book of Romans while he was in Corinth, especially chapter one, which speaks of man's 
fallenness or man's sinfulness in, in, in really great detail, right? Because he's basically witnessing this all around him in the city. And he's here to tell these people the good news, to save them from this sin. So it says in verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, uh, Claudius being the emperor of Rome at this time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So, Originally from Rome, but having been forced to flee due to this emperor Claudius persecution against the Jews, Aquila and his wife Priscilla find themselves in Corinth, where they basically run into Paul, who ends up staying with them. If you don't know who these guys are, Romans tells us, Romans sixteen three through 4, Paul tells us that they were pretty close friends of Paul. He actually refers to them as his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. So they, they, they be, the, there's a close friendship that comes out of this. And it seems to be implied here that maybe they might have been Christians. They might have been believers of Jesus before they met Paul. But it's also possible that as they were working together as tent makers, the idea uh, of a tent maker, somebody that worked with leather, which was Paul's trade, as they worked together, maybe he was able to preach the gospel to them and they got saved as well, which I just thought was a good reminder to us that your jobs our ministry fields. Have you guys have you guys have you guys been able to tell people about Jesus in your jobs? I mean, you know, most of us we spend a lot of time there. We build relationships as we talk about often it's through your relationships is the most effective way you're able to tell people about Jesus because you get to show them practically what it looks like to live according to his word and that resonates with people and they want to know why and you get to tell them about Jesus. And here's a great example of maybe this is the way they got saved, like through just working alongside them, making tents, and then wanting to know why he said what he said or he did what he did, and he got to tell them about Jesus. Now, though Paul recognized his right to be supported by those he ministered to in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about that. He also, what we see is he voluntarily had this heart to basically raise his own funds for a lot of his mission work, basically, according to 1 Corinthians 9 as well, with a goal of not wanting anyone to think that somehow he was doing what he was doing just to get rich. And part of that was probably because he had a heart for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had rules where rabbis or teachers weren't allowed to accept money for their messages. So a lot of rabbis and, and teachers would have separate jobs. And so basically he didn't want to cause them to stumble. So that's why you see that a lot in a lot of instances he did accept support. But at the same time... He would work and he would earn some of his own support to support himself. And it goes on in verse 4 and it says, And he reasoned or had discussions in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, Greeks being like they, them being at synagogue because they've come to know the Jewish God, so they're God-fearing Gentiles. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul and Timothy, remember, he left them a couple cities ago as they were staying back to disciple people. Paul was getting persecuted, so he moved on. They catch up to him now. And when they find him, they find him reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath, which again, this was Paul's MO. He would usually start with the Jewish people. Note him formerly being a uh, Pharisee knew the word really well, knew they knew the word, felt confident that I can explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah being talked about in the word. So he would start there. 
And that's where they find him. And that's exactly what he's doing according to verse 5. He's using the word of God to prove to them, the Jews, that Jesus was the Christ. A simple Jesus-focused message. Paul actually tells us what that message consisted of in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. The letter that he wrote later to these guys. When he says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words in impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. That's what a good reminder, because we're going to see there's a lot of fruit from his trip here in Corinth. There's a big church that comes with this. But he was very intentional of just keeping it simple, just using the word of God to tell people about Jesus. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't study, you shouldn't know God's word, you shouldn't prep. But here's the thing. Sometimes in our efforts to, you know, very intellectually present the gospel or very eloquently present it, we forget all about the fact that if it ain't the Holy Spirit speaking it through you, then it isn't going to do anything of eternal value in anyone. Amen? I mean, I, I, I want to bring a great offering to the Lord. I want to do my diligence to rightly divide the word so that I, I bring a, a sacrifice that costs me something. But at the end of the day, I'm on my knees, or at the end of the week, I'm on my knees, and I'm, Lord, uh, I'm saying, Lord, this is five loaves and two fish. It ain't going to feed nobody unless you bless it and you, through the power of your spirit, minister it to people. And we should remember that, all right? Whenever we're telling people about Jesus, because it takes a lot of pressure off you, all right? We rely on God and his Holy Spirit to work through the word of God. Amen? And so that's what he relied on. And it says in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled or criticized him... He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So according to verse six, there's, a lot of the people in the synagogue, or the majority at least, that chose not to believe. They weren't receiving what the news that basically Paul was sharing with them. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And in knowing that he did his due diligence in sharing the truth of God's word with them, he's in a, like a visual sense. He just kind of shakes the dust from the like dusty synagogue he was at, just leaving it all behind and basically tells him, all right, you know what? I've told you the truth. And you've chosen to reject it. So now this judgment that you you face for your sin is you've brought it upon yourself. Or he uses the terminology, you've brought blood on your own heads. Basically, you've heard the truth and you've chosen not to believe it and reject it. And that's on you. And him being faithful to deliver God's message that he gave him to tell them, he could leave in peace knowing that whether they received it or not, that wasn't his problem. That wasn't, he, he can't change hearts. His job was to be the messenger. It was up to them to receive it. And he could leave in peace knowing he had given that message. And that is a good word for us too because sharing the good news of God's word with those the Lord puts in our lives is something that we want to be found faithful in as well 
so that we can be at peace knowing that we've done our part and not have to carry some sort of regret or, or worry that somehow we haven't been faithful to give the whole word of God to somebody that they need to know so they knew how to be saved, all right? Now, prophet Ezekiel, if you aren't familiar with him, God told him something similar. He was somebody that was during a hard time of the nation of Israel's life. They were in rebellion against God and they were carried away into exile in Babylon. And he raised up a prophet to tell them that of their sin so that they would repent of it and he could restore them and bring them back to the land. And so Ezekiel was given a very hard message to give to the people. But God says, you need to be faithful to do this. He says in Ezekiel 33, starting in verse one, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land, the idea of the sword is like death and judgment. So God's saying, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. Basically, that's what's happening here, like with Paul and these people in Corinth, the Jews at the synagogue, is that he was faithful to give the message and they didn't receive it. So the blood was on their head. It was their responsibility. And that's what's being told to Ezekiel here. But listen to this. It says, but if he has, if he had taken warning, he would have, have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his sin or his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Or basically, if the watchman isn't faithful to give the message God gave him to warn the people and they, they never hear that warning, then there is sin on that watchman's part and not doing what God told them to do. Verse seven, so it says, you son of man, I have made a watchman of the mouth um, or uh, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel where when it, wherever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. That's what we're responsible for is God's messengers to give the warning or give the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ to people. Verse eight says, if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity or sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn away from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity or sin, but you will have delivered your soul. So in essence, God told Ezekiel that, hey, if you fail to share the truth of God's word with the people that I've told you to, their blood um, would be on your hands. Or in essence, you'd be guilty of disobeying my word or what I told you to do, and that is sin. And I thought that was interesting because a lot of the time I think we think of sin is not doing bad things, right? It's like, oh, I shouldn't do this because God says this is bad. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't, you know, like covet. I shouldn't, you know, murder, obviously. You know, like the things God says are bad. That's the way we think of sin. But one thing we don't always think of is that sin is also our failure to do the things that we know we should do and not do them. Okay, actually, there's a passage that says that. James says that blatantly in in James 4.17. He says, remember... It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So, two, if we're not faithful to share the good news with the people of the Lord, the people the Lord's given us to, their blood will be on our hands, so to speak. Now, 
It's not a different sin than any other sin. It's a sin that Jesus has paid for, that you're forgiven of. But nonetheless, it's a sin that will bear consequences in our lives if we're guilty of it. One of which is often, and you guys can probably relate to this, is the conviction or a lack of peace when we don't take advantage of sharing the truth of God's word with people that we know we should have shared it with. Anyone ever felt that way? It's like you're prompted. The Holy Spirit's like leading you like, I should tell this person about Jesus or I should... Point them to this truth from God's word because I know it's what they're looking for. And then I just, I wuss out. I don't, I don't do it. And then I walk away just feeling kind of convicted like, oh my goodness, I just blew that open door. It's like, that's not a good feeling, right? And what the enemy likes to do with that is he likes to twist it and turn it into guilt or regret when you start thinking about the what ifs. Like, oh man, especially if something happens where like, you know, Lord forbid that person dies or something and you never got to say the truth to them. And then you wonder, right? And the enemy tries to condemn you with that. Man, when my grandparents were dying, it was, it was slow. Like they knew they were going to die. And I had had conversations with them about Jesus, but I, had, I didn't have the surety of knowing that they were saved. So you better believe, man, I was like as blatant and forward, making sure I was telling them everything I could think of. Because at the end of the day, I wanted that peace when they were gone of knowing that they heard the whole entire truth that they needed to to receive and be saved and set free. So I didn't have to live with that, like any type of uh, unrest in knowing that I didn't say what should have been said. And that's, that's, it's for our benefit to have that, all right? So we want to be faithful. There's a peace that the Bible actually talks about that comes with right living in Hebrews 12, 11. It's called the peaceable fruit of righteousness, or basically, there's a fruit of living rightly according to God's word that gives you peace of mind in your life. And that's why we lack it when we're not living according to his word. God wants you to have that peace. And one thing I want to make clear, though, is that there is definitely a difference, and you see that in that passage in Ezekiel, between having blood on your hands and blood on your head. Basically, God telling Ezekiel that anyone that hears the truth and fails to believe it experiences the sword or death basically they bring judgment or blood on their head that's not what you're responsible for you're never responsible for somebody's salvation okay basically the only person that can save themselves or or is responsible for their salvation is yourself in believing the good news of jesus christ that's not on you we're just the the messenger basically to present it to people so that they have the chance to do that amen so that's an important distinguishing. So Paul, basically, he's saying that he's getting nowhere with these people in the synagogue. They're not interested in believing what he's saying. So he basically, you know, dusts himself off, says, I've told you everything you need to know to be saved. Judgment's on you now if you choose not to. And he says, I'm going to the Gentiles, which would have probably upset them because in the Jews' mind, Gentiles were not worthy of knowing God. And he's like, I'm going to go take the good news to them. And he doesn't go far. He goes right next door to a guy's house. Then somehow the, the, the leader of the synagogue gets saved and his whole family and then tons of these other Corinthians and, and they're proclaiming their faith, getting baptized. I mean, this is real salvation, all right? And then it goes on in verse 9 and it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But, or the idea is instead, go on speaking and do not be silent. For or because I am with you, number one, and no one will attack you to harm you for and or and I have many in this city who are my people. So the Lord appears to Paul in a vision. And what does he tell him? Don't be afraid. 
which means that Paul must have been afraid. How many of you guys have moments of fear in your life? All right, every single one of us, if your hand's not up, you're lying. We all go through worry and fear, okay? And, and sometimes it gets really bad. I mean, my, my wife had a season where she was really struggling with anxiety to the point where she couldn't even get out of bed. It was so bad. And I know some of you guys struggle with that too. So this is a very real battle for us. And I, I point this out because it was a battle for Paul too. This guy that we look at is a super Christian. He had these moments of fear too. And the Lord knew when he needed that personal encouragement, all right? Because he personally comes to meet him at this place of fear. How many of you guys have experienced that in your life? Where you're at a low point and the Lord sends somebody or speaks to you in some way through his word or just meets you in some way because you need that encouragement. I, amen. Amen. I had that this week. It was a bad week. Just lots of discouragement for lots of different reasons. Some for just no reason at all. Just kind of like a heaviness over me. And, and there were more than a couple of people that either just reached out, had one brother that just came over for another reason completely said, you know, what? I just want to pray for you and your wife. Um, had somebody else just send a really encouraging text this morning. These people didn't even know it. But what they're being used is by the Lord to bring encouragement because the Lord needed, I know, knew I needed to hear that. And we want to be, that's why another reason we want to be faithful when the Lord prompts us to do something like that. Like send a text to this person. Ask them how they're doing. That's the Holy Spirit because he wants to use you in that way to be an encouragement. So the Lord encourages Paul personally here. And judging by what he tells Paul, number one, it would appear that He's fearful with the potential persecution he could be facing for sharing the truth of God's word, the people in Corinth. And if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you know he had reason to understand or be fearful, right? Or he, not that he was to be afraid, but he has good reason to expect bad things to happen for being faithful to the minister of God. Because up to this point, he's been stoned, he's been run out of town, he's been thrown in prison. So it's not like this guy was being a baby, all right? So he's struggling with that. A little bit, not that he didn't want to be faithful, but at the repercussions that could come with it. And then he's also maybe struggling with some discouragement from seeing a lack of visible fruit or wondering if what he was doing was making a difference, which he has reason for that, too, because he just came out of a place of Athens. And and by and far, a lot of the people, even though there were some, didn't receive his message. And we talked about this last week, how that's our lives as Christians. There's more people that don't believe than do believe. All right. So we can. It's always, it's always the negative that stands out the most. And part of that's spiritual because the enemy wants you to see that and be discouraged. So he's discouraged at some things that we can be discouraged in too, right? We don't like when people respond negatively to what is supposed to be good news. That's persecution. And we don't like when people don't just respond and receive it and get saved like we want them to. Amen? Those are discouraging. And so we can struggle with these same thing, same things. So God's direction to Paul, though, is very interesting because, look, it says, do not be afraid, but, or basically instead, go on speaking and don't be silent. Or basically what he tells him is like, instead of sitting around and just meditating on these thoughts of fear and thinking and dwelling on these things, get back out there and do what I told you to do. All right? Get back out there and get to work. And I think that's interesting, again, because fear is this very real struggle we all go through in our lives. And here's a principle here that's very important for us to understand in overcoming fear, all right? Now, first, I just want to establish, I want to make it, make sure it's clear to you guys, fear is not from the Lord, okay? Because I, I remember a very real moment in my wife's anxiety where she's like, I, she was at this kind of place of defeat, and she's like, I guess this is just a trial the Lord wants for me. 
And I was like, no, babe. I'm like, this is not the Lord of the Lord. It says in 1 John 4, 18, such love, that's the love God has shown to you in his sending his son to die so your sins can be forgiven. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. All right. So fear comes from a place of 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 worrying that something bad is going to happen to you. Okay, that's what fear is. It's it's fear of punishment. And I like how it says there in first John 4, 18, that if we're afraid it's for fear of punishment, because here's the thing, any punishment you deserved for anything you've done wrong in your life, Jesus took on that cross. Okay, he took the punishment you deserve. So now as a child of God, there's no punishment to be had for you. That's the God has expelled every reason for you to be fearful, knowing that truth. Okay, now there's discipline, but that's different. I I often like to, you know, like when I'm talking to people about disciplining their kids, like I don't use the term punishment because we're not punishing them. We discipline them for their betterment. That's our heart because we love them. Punishment is to inflict harm and hurt on people. We don't punish people. We are kids. We discipline them. And that's the way God looks at you. Sometimes you need to be disciplined for your benefit. I need to be disciplined for my benefit, but not punished. There is no punishment. Jesus took that punishment willingly because of his love for you. So now you have no reason whatsoever to be fearful. Perfect love has cast out fear. And as a result, Paul says in Second Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline, or some of your translations say sound mind. But I like the NLT that says self-discipline because guess what? It takes discipline to have a sound mind. All right? Because here's the thing. God's given you his word. He's given you his promises. All of that is right thinking. And it's important to know it because we have a tendency to think wrong thinking. Okay? And the enemy tries to lie to you so you think wrong thinking. So it is discipline. It takes discipline When you have those wrong thoughts to replace them with the right thoughts, according to God's word. All right. And this is exactly what he tells us to do to address fear and worry, because we have this tendency to entertain those thoughts and and, and, and dwell on them and think on them. And especially when I'm not busy living for the Lord. And when I say busy living for the Lord, it doesn't it's not all about just doing it's just like your normal life. Raising your kids, raising your wife, while being in the word, while praying, while hanging out with other believers. That's living for the Lord. And when I'm busy doing that, I have no time to entertain the lies of the enemy. But when I'm sitting around having too much time on my hands, withdrawn from community, withdrawn from my brothers and sisters, not in the word, not in prayer. That's when I entertain the lies of the enemy. And so what we're told to do. God reiterates this in his word. He says in Philippians 4, 6 through 9, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, this is a part that never usually gets explained. This is important. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true. In honorable, in right, in pure, in lovely, in admirable. Those are all things found in God's word. 
Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And here's the next part. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. There's a three-step process in that passage to conquering fear. First, what he says is, when you realize you're being fearful, stop and pray. Okay? Talk to God. Tell him what you're afraid of. He's a big boy. He can handle it. Ask him to help you. All right? That's the first step. But then the second step is what? Fix your thoughts on the truths of God's word. Now, I like that word fix because it's not like just a one-time thing where I recite a verse in my head. That's not going to fix my mind on it. I got to recite. I got to know. I got to be in the word. I got to remind myself. No, no, that's not true. That's not right. And I got to keep telling myself that. But then the third thing is then put it into practice. Get out there and be busy for the Lord. And when you do those three things, then the God of peace will be with you. It's not that he's not there. He's always there. It's just that then you will remember that he's there. Same thing he's going to tell Paul in the second or he told in that passage. He's like, I'm with you. You're going to realize he's with you. If he's with me, that's all I need to know. All right. But doing that, talking to him instead of worrying, fixing your mind on the truths from his word and then just being busy for him. That helps you fix your mind where it needs to be, all right? You've probably heard it said before that idle hands are the devil's playground. Well, an idle mind is the devil's microphone. And what I mean by that is complacency often leads us having time to listen to and entertaining the enemy's lies. There was a time in my life where I used to complain a lot on how busy I was. And I still can make that mistake. But the Lord taught me over time, Chris, this is where you are best off Because you will not listen to the lies of the enemy and be discouraged. All right? And I learned to stop complaining about it because I just really realized that was the truth. It's when I was sitting around and I was doing nothing and my mind wasn't where it should be that opened me up to listening to those lies and becoming discouraged and anxious. All right? But when I'm busy for the Lord, I'm so focused on following him and just doing what he wants me to do and being with him that I don't have time to entertain those lies. And I see that same pattern often in other people's lives as well. They're struggling with discouragement and fear as they have a lot of free time just with their thoughts. And my counsel to them when they're looking for it is always the same as Paul's here. It's like, get off the bench and get back in the game. All right? Which will naturally lead to you and require you to have your mind fixed on Jesus, which Isaiah 26 3 tells us, you will keep him in perfect peace, all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. That's the key. But it takes discipline and intentionality on our part to do those things. But in essence, that's what he tells him right off the front. He says, don't be afraid. Get back out there and keep telling people about Jesus. Amen. Now, he also gives him two reasons why it makes no sense for you to be afraid, Paul. The first being his presence. The second being his promises. First, God tells him regarding his presence in verse 10, I am with you. You don't have to be afraid, Paul, because I'm with you. Family, if we just understand who it is that's saying that to us and knowing that it's not just that he's with us, but as it tells us in Romans 8.31, he's for you, you don't need to know anything else. That in itself is all you need to know to know that you're going to be all right. You ain't got nothing to fear. That's why he tells him first, Paul, I'm with you. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. I'm still for you. I'm with you. 
Second thing he says, he gives him some promises. God didn't tell Paul that his opponents wouldn't try to stop him, but that no one will attack you to harm you in verse 10, or that they wouldn't be successful at their efforts. God's sometimes protecting us from trials like we see here. Other times he's with us in them, like when he got stoned in Lystra and when he was in prison in Philippi. But Paul, he'd surely come into that understanding that, all right, sometimes when you see external gains in your life, there's going to be some personal pain that comes with it because the enemy's not happy. All right, when the Lord is working, the enemy wants to try to discourage you to stop doing what the Lord is doing through you and in you. And he recognized that. That's probably why he's fearful. It's like, oh, I know what might be coming. But God reassures him, any persecution or harm you experience, here's all you need to know. You're going to be all right. I'm going to be with you in it, and I'm going to get you through it. That's all you need to know. All right? And then he goes on to promise Paul that I have many in this city who are my people. Basically, what he's telling him is like, your labor is not in vain. You may not see the fruit right now, but I promise you, there are many people here that need to know me and follow me. So keep going. All right? Gives them those promises to believe in, to stand on. And then guess what he does in verse 11? It says he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He stayed there longer than anywhere else it appears that he went. Just off of those promises. Paul just not being interested in getting people saved, but also wanting to stay and disciple them once they were saved. Teach them the word. That's what he's doing, right? It says the main focus of his ministry was what? Teaching the word of God. Man, if the word of God is what 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us, is God uses to prepare and equip his people to do every good work, it better be the focus of any ministry we're doing for him. Because we want people to be able to do every good work of God, right? And that was Paul's focus. All right, so as the worship team comes up here, I just want to point out or go back to that idea of that, that consistency, that stability in Paul's life, his faithfulness that we see here in that he stays in this place and just keeps going despite coming in with this, this, this feeling of fear initially, all right? Because he stays there for a year and a half Unlike his typical short stops in other cities, why? And I believe at least one of the reasons is because he had faith in the promises God gave him. They encouraged and strengthened him and they gave him the assurances he needed to persevere and keep going. Again, he's afraid, rightfully so. He knows that when things, like when he sees fruit, things are about to get hard and God says, it's all right, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to be all right. And he says there, and then, you know, just that other discouragement of like, I don't even know if what I'm doing is matter, Lord. It matters. You're being faithful to me and it matters. There's people here to be saved. Keep going. And just off those promises, he grasps them. It's what he needs. All right. The Lord said, he's with me. I'm not wasting my time. I'm going to keep going. And he keeps going. For a long time in that city. And it just made me think of how like sometimes I can feel like my life with the Lord is a roller coaster in that like it's really it can be emotional like ups and downs mountaintop experiences lows. It doesn't have to be that way. That's a product of my flesh. It's certainly not what the Lord wants because I can be rejoicing one moment and fearful the next 
like we see Paul here. But what the Lord would remind me of is the same things he reminds Paul of. He's given me all these promises. All these promises to hold on to. We talked about this last week. Assurances, things you can be absolutely assured of. God's for you. He's working all things for your good. He's never going to leave or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He's gone to prepare a place for you. And he's going to come back and bring you there. Our brother Greg found that out. Kept his promise. We've got all these assurances. And here's the cool thing. Whether you believe it or not, whether you're struggling to believe it or not, doesn't matter to God in that he will keep them. They're received through your faith in Jesus through becoming a child of God. They're not conditional. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that even when you're faithless, even when you're having trouble believing these, God will still keep them. It's another reason to have like confidence and stability in his promises because even if you're struggling to believe them, God is going to keep them. But when we believe them in faith, even though when we don't believe them, it doesn't affect him keeping them. But when we believe in faith, you better believe that it will affect your life. When you have the faith to believe and take God at his word, it is what will create stability. It is what will create consistency. It will, like Jesus talks about, it's like a person building a house on a rock. The storm comes and the house just stands firm. And that's why it's so important to to believe, to know the promises of God and believe because they're what's going to help us endure and persevere. Instability, fear, discouragement, they all either come from a lack of understanding God's word, like we don't know what it says, or a problem with having faith in it or lack of faith in it, lack of believing it. But here's the thing, because we can all struggle with those, even if you lack understanding in God's word, even if you are having trouble believing it, here's the other thing the Lord reminds Paul of, I'm with you. And that's what he'd remind you of today. I'm with you. Even if you're not understanding how any of this is working in your favor, I'm with you. And that's enough. Just like it was for him to know that the Lord is in the driver's seat, just like the example I gave you in the very beginning. Because even if you don't know that you feel directionless, God is the one driving. And he is going to get you right to where he wants you. And it's always going to be with your best interests in mind. Amen? As long as we don't try to rip that wheel away from him, you're going to end up right where he wants you. But my exhortation to you as we have our time of response is just this. Remember, believer, the Lord's with you. Number two, he's given you numerous promises to stand firmly on. And his desire is, is to live is for you to live in peace and stability knowing those things. And I've said this a couple of weeks ago, but I really sense it's a word today for some people in here at least in that I think every I'm confident every single one of us in here would say I believe that in my head. It's not enough to know it though. Cuz God intends for you to be able to live it. It's got to go from here to here. That's what God wants to do through his Holy Spirit inside of you. And so today, what we're going to do is we're just going to, during this last time, we're going to have a prayer team around the room like we normally do. But I'm going to encourage you guys. If you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you're worried about something, if you're like Paul, be like that guy. I think it's in Mark 9. I have it listed. 
There was a guy that came to Jesus with his son that was demon-possessed. And he wanted Jesus to help him. And Jesus told him, all things are possible for one who believes. And the guy said, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And he helped him. He wasn't mad at him for struggling. God, remember we talked about last week? He understands us because he was—he lived as a man, was tried and tempted in every way, never gave in to sin, but he understands you. He knows that we struggle with faith. It doesn't make him mad. And it's okay to admit that. So if you're in a place where you're struggling to believe that God's with you, if you're struggling to believe the good promises he's given you, just admit it to him. Say, Lord, I want to believe. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. Do business with him right here so you can experience that peace leaving here that maybe you didn't come with. Amen? If you want to come up, bear that burden with your brother and sister so we can pray with you on these things. The Lord has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power, sound mind. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, I know that that's your heart for all of us. And we want it. We do, Lord. It's so hard to get past what we see and what we perceive sometimes. But may we just be humble like that man that brought his son to you and just admit, Lord, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. You've never given us a single moment in our lives to doubt you. You've been nothing but faithful. So often, even in the times where I, I just didn't even see it at first, how it, whatever was happening was good for me. I look back in hindsight now and I see that you were doing something totally different than I thought and it was way better. And that will always be the case, Lord. You know all things. You're in control of all things. You have a way bigger picture in mind than I could ever have. And I have no reason not to trust you. As, you, as Paul says, surely the one that's, given us his son you you'll give us all things if you were willing to give your son you're not going to withhold anything from us that's good so we have every reason to trust you and may we come to you now and do just that and may we live in that peace that you intend for each of us in jesus name amen